the second reading um, today will be taken from John chapter 1, uh, verse 43 to 51. Uh, feel free to follow on the screen behind me. Um, if you want to read from the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1110. So verse, verse 43. Uh, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the north town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Amy, and thank you for praying for us, Michael. Uh, my name is John De Huyn. <laughs> I'm the minister. Uh, you'll be glad to know that I did not write this gospel. It was John the Apostle. And as a church, we are committed to knowing God more deeply so that we might love him more. And the way we do that is that we engage with his word week in, week out. And so that's why we are committed as a church where we do work through books of the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter. And so for the next two months or so, we'll be working through this gospel until we reach Easter Sunday when we'll look at John chapter 11 when Jesus declares that I am the resurrection and the life. And so you can prepare well by reading ahead this gospel. Many of our growth groups are also studying this. And you'll find helpful if you are visiting new to us on the inside of the newsletter, there is the outline of the sermon. You might find that helpful. Well, as we have a look at this passage, we must remember we are engaging with God as we reflect on his word. So let's once again pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we read these words, hear it read and taught, that we'll be remembering how significant it is that we are engaging with the Lord Jesus himself as we hear you speak. Help us to know him more deeply as we are known by him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you may have heard the saying, ignorance is bliss. Now, what do you think about that? Well, quite often it is bliss to just not know. Take, for example, the things we eat. Sometimes it's better to, know, to not know what's in it. For example, do you really want to know what is in a haggis of Never tried, I heard it's tasty, but I probably will never want to know what's in it. It looks interesting anyway. 
Or do you really want to know what's in a dim sim? Now I can say that there is cabbage and a whole lot of other type of meat, but I have no idea what they are. Or do you really want to know, as you're eating at a restaurant in Box Hill, this is what I do when I go to the bathroom, I just take a peek into the kitchen to see what it's like. Often it's better not to know so that you can eat with joy. Or do you really want to know what is in an Australian meat pie? Well, tell, let me tell you what's in it. Under the food standards in our country, it only has to contain 25% of meat. And that 25% can include the snout, the ears, the tongue roots, blood vessels, nerves, and maybe a little bit of beef as well. In fact, in Britain a couple of years ago, they found horse meat in their cottage pies. You know, it brings new meaning to those who say, I'm hungry enough to eat a horse. But you see, ignorance is bliss, or so we believe. You know, sometimes it's better not to know. Now, the next time you eat a meat pie, you probably will never eat it the same way again. But often it seems ignorance is bliss. It's just better not to know. I'd rather not know. It's easier to live life that way. It's more comfortable, more convenient to live life just not knowing. And that's why we say things like, no news is, bad, is good news, isn't it? No news is good news. Because it's often better just not to know. Rather not watch the news to see all the craziness that's going around the world. But then there are things in life that is too important where ignorance is dangerous for example going to the beach and not knowing anything about rips or currents that is deadly dangerous and so many have lost their lives that way Martin Luther King Jr. he once said nothing in all the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and that is especially true when it comes to matters of God. So many are so content. It's convenient to live a life not thinking about God, not knowing about God, not knowing anything about God. But that is deadly dangerous. It is especially true that ignorance is dangerous when it comes to matters of God, matters of heaven and hell, matters of eternal life. And so the passage we're looking at today Jesus wants us to not live a life of ignorance. Jesus, in a sense, invites us, come and see. He invites these disciples of his, come and see. Don't be ignorant. This is the word of God. Remember we saw last week, the word of God in the very beginning, who was with God and is God and became flesh to make known the Father. Jesus invites us in, come and see. Do not be ignorant of who I am. Because what we'll find is that Jesus is far more important, far greater than we can ever imagine. And so let's have a look at this. We begin in this passage. Do keep your Bibles open. We'll make our way through it. We begin in this passage with John the Baptist. Now he's become quite famous by this time. He's been baptizing people. And now the head office is sending out the priests and the Levites to check him out. They want to work out, why are you baptizing? By what authority? So look at verses 21, 22. They ask him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. 
Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? You see, they wanted to know, What right do you have to go on baptising people? By what authority are you doing this, John? Now how did John respond? Did he say, Well, I've got every right and this is none of your business? Well, that's not what we see. What did he say? He said, you see, you, you came to check me out because you think I'm important. But John responds by saying, I'm only merely a voice. My person is not important, but what I say is important. In fact, the one who will come after me, he's more worthy than I am. I'm not even worthy enough to untie his sandals. But what I say is important. So look at verse 23 now. John replied, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. And so John is saying, I'm not important at all. But my words are important. What I say is like the, the announcer, a very important announcer. It's like at the US State of the Union address each year. There's a particular person who's given a very important role. He's called the Sergeant at Arms. He's the one who announces the coming of the president as the president comes in. So he announces with a booming voice, Mr. Speaker, the president of the United States. Everyone stands, the president enters, and everyone claps. He's the announcer, a very important role. Or with the royal family, any official events, there's a royal trumpet fanfare as the queen enters. But here, John is saying, I'm not the announcer for any queen or any monarch or any president. I'm the announcer of God himself, that the Lord is coming. Be ready and don't be ignorant of this. And then we read on the next day, he sees Jesus and what does he say? He points him out, verse 29. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now what did he mean by that? He saw Jesus walking, calls him a lamb. Now, I'm not sure how you feel about that, but if I'm called a lamb, I'm not too impressed by that. I'd rather be called a tiger or an elephant. So why lamb? Why lamb of God? Well, you see, John the Baptist, he was picking up Old Testament images and combining all of it into one. When Abraham was called to sacrifice his son, God provided a substitute. And so the Lamb of God here is going to be that substitute for all people. Or when the Israelites, they killed the Passover lamb and spread the blood over the doorpost. The Passover lamb saved the firstborn in the house. Well, John is saying, here's the Lamb of God who's going to be that Passover lamb. Or in Israel, in their life, they had to offer daily sacrifices of two lambs, one in the morning, one at twilight, as a sacrifice for sins. Well, the Lamb of God, John is saying, this is the one who, who is that sacrifice for our sins. But perhaps the most explicit found in the Old Testament is found in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 7, we read this. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And then verse 12, For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. John is saying, All you people, you've come to hear me, 
But you need to look out for him because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is God's provision to deal with our sins. You see, even in Old Testament times, all these sacrifices, the lambs, the bulls, the goats, they were God's provision. They didn't make up those animals. It was all provided by God. And John here points out, well, that is the greatest and the last provision from God, the Lamb of God. And so John is saying something pretty major here about Jesus. All the expectations, all the anticipations for hundreds of years, for centuries, who is the one who will deal with my sin and guilt and shame? John points him out. He is the one. Not just for Israel, but for the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's why Jesus, later on, he calls John the greatest of the prophets. Now, isn't that bizarre? Why would John the Baptist be the greatest of the prophets, greater than even Moses? How is that at all possible? Well, it is possible because out of all the prophets, only he got to see the Saviour with his own eyes. Only he got to point out, this is the one. All the other prophets, they were longing to see, but they didn't. Only John did. And so John here pointed him out. The Apostle John recorded this down so that we today, as we read these words, will not be ignorant of the importance and the significance of who Jesus is. You see, for Jesus to be the Lamb of God, John is making the point, the safest place in the entire universe is to be with that Lamb is to stand with that Lamb of God, is to believe in that Lamb of God. Because who else can get rid of your guilt? Who else can get rid of your sin? Now we all know that we've all got a past and none of us, as powerful as we might be, can ever change our past. And none of us can ever presume that one day we can stand before God Almighty and claim, I am innocent. None of us. And so I suspect for some of us, we do all have a past that we're guilty of, that we're shameful of, and that we are clearly sinful. Who can change the past? And I suspect even some of us this morning might even be weighed down by things that continues to crush us. The shame, the guilt, I can't fix up my past. That the feeling like in the novel Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, she had blood on her hands. She couldn't get rid of that guilt. And, and what did she say? All the perfumes of Persia cannot sweeten this little hand. And if it's the feeling of any one of us, John here announces, well, there's the solution. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You can't change your past, but he can deal with your past. And John is making clear, don't be ignorant of him. But then there's more to Jesus. Not merely the Lamb of God we see here. John now declares he's also the Son of God. Now, of course, we know this already because of earlier in chapter 1 of last week. But for John, the confirmation was seen by seeing the Spirit of God come upon him and remain upon him. Look at verses 32 and 33. John said, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. 
I would have not known him, except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now what's happening here? Well, not only is Jesus the Lamb of God, but he's the one who has the Spirit of God. It's giving us more information on who Jesus is. Is sharpening our focus on how important he is. He's the one who has the Spirit of God. Now in the Old Testament, some people got the Spirit of God, but it was only temporary. King Saul, he got the Spirit of God, but the Spirit was taken away from him. But in Isaiah, God promised one day, my Spirit will be poured upon a king. One day, my Spirit will be given to the servant of the Lord, the one who will suffer. And who is this? Well, John the Baptist witnessed that, pointed him out. This is the one, not only the Lamb of God, but now also the Son of God, the one who is king, the one whom God's Spirit rests upon. And so verse 34, he said, I've seen and I testify this is the Son of God. So we're getting a sharper focus of who Jesus is. Lamb of God, Son of God. And then what happened next? Well, the next day, John, he sees Jesus again, points him out again. So important, Lamb of God, over there. But then what happened with his two disciples? Do you notice that in the reading? They swapped allegiance. They were followers of John. They were disciples of John. John was their teacher. But now they became followers of Jesus. Isn't that strange? Verse 37 when the two disciples, that is the two disciples of John, heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Isn't that strange? Did they do the right thing? I mean, wasn't that a bit of disloyalty? You've been following John for quite a while, but now you just switch sides? It's like switching teams. One day you're following, barracking for Carlton, next day is Collingwood. Not that I know much about football, but switching sides. How is that okay? But put yourself in their shoes. They've just heard John call out, that is the Son of God. That is the Lamb of God. Now what do you do as you're listening to John? I can't believe you, John. You're just pulling my leg here. This is not for real. He's the Lamb of God. You're just dreaming. He takes away the sins of the world. That is not possible. Now wouldn't that be the attitude of someone who is ignorant? But what would the wise person do? Well, they'll do what these two did. I better check him out. And so verse 38, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? Or more literally, uh, the translation is, What are you searching for? Now, now, we can understand this question as just a simple question, Jesus asking, Why are you following me? But I suspect the question of Jesus to these two disciples goes far deeper. It's a piercing question to the heart. What is it that you are searching for in following me? What is it that you are searching for in life? And I suspect as a derivative it applies to us as well. Jesus is asking, what are you searching for in life? Well, these two, they didn't really know how to answer. And so they asked, where are you staying, Rabbi? And Jesus invites them, come and you will see. 
They did not want to be ignorant. John just said, he's the Lamb of God. They want to check him out. And Jesus says, well, come and you will see. Come and you will see what God will do. Come and you will see the mind and purposes of God. Come and you'll see greater things. And so Andrew, he was convinced. This is indeed the Messiah. We get another title for Jesus. He finds his brother Simon, brings him to Jesus. We have found the Messiah. Now the Messiah is the title for God's anointed one, the long-awaited king. Andrew is now convinced. And you see the, the titles for Jesus, they keep on piling up. Lamb of God, Son of God, the Messiah, but then that's not all. The next day, Jesus finds Philip, invites him, follow me. He gets excited. He calls his friend Nathaniel, who, who, who comes along. And now this gets a bit interesting. Look at verse 47 now. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, He is a true Israelite, in whom there is nothing false. Jesus shows by that comment that I can see what's going inside his heart. He is a true Israelite because he will follow his Messiah. Now Nathaniel, he was obviously surprised and so he asked, How do you know me? I've never met you. How do you know me? And do you notice Jesus' response? Verse 48, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip caught you. And that was enough for Nathaniel. He responded, verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now when you read that, you must ask, how did he come to that conclusion? If I said to you, I saw you at Chatson Shopping Centre yesterday, what would you say? you say, well, that's okay. That's probably a bit weird. Why didn't you come by and say hi? You wouldn't start calling me, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. I'm sure you wouldn't. I hope you wouldn't. But what was happening here was that Jesus was displaying his supernatural knowledge of Nathaniel. And that was enough to convince him this is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Israel. And now finally, towards the end of this chapter, Jesus finally teaches for the first time in the Gospel of John. Jesus declares who he is himself. He's not only the Lamb of God, that is true. He's not only the Son of God, that is true. He's not only the Messiah, that's also true. But now Jesus adds another one. I am the Son of Man. That is Jesus saying, I am the meeting point between heaven and earth. I am the stairway to heaven. Come and you'll see greater things. And so Jesus, in a sense, ratchets up who he is. Look at verses 50 and 51, now the climax of our passage. Jesus says to Nathaniel first, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. And now he speaks to all the others together. You shall see greater things than that. I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, why did Jesus use this title, Son of Man? 
He was already called Son of God. You should be pretty happy with that already. He was called the Lamb of God. should be pretty happy. The Messiah. What more do you want? Why did he call himself the Son of Man instead? Well, you see, for a Jewish reader, they would know this. Because in the book of Daniel, the Son of Man is a divine figure. The one who approaches the Ancient of Days and is given all power and all authority over not just a city, not just a country, but over the universe. And Jesus says, I am that. I am that Son of Man. And not only that, what Jesus says here, he eludes this stairway with angels ascending and descending. It's not a new concept. Jesus alluding to what Jacob saw in a dream in Genesis 28. Jacob saw a stairway reaching to heaven and God making promises to him. But now Jesus is saying that dream that Jacob saw is to become a reality in me. Heaven is now opened and I'm the only way. The only way you'll have eternal life. The only way you'll have perfect peace and joy forever. The only way you'll meet God and be with God forever. Jesus says, heaven is opened and I'm the only way. And all the promises made to Jacob, they'll all come true in me. All that you'll know about God is by me. All of heaven's blessings will be through me. And so all of God's purposes, Jesus says, is now centred on not just anyone or anything, but it is centred on the Son of Man, centred on him. A commentator, a theologian, he once said, I like this, he said, Jesus is the meeting point between heaven's fullness and earth's need. And so these first few disciples of Jesus, Andrew, and then Peter, and Philip, and Nathaniel, they've been invited. You've got a hint of who I am. Come, and you'll see greater things. And the reality is that as we read this gospel, that invitation always extends to us as well. Come, check out Jesus, and you will see greater things. And so that's our passage. It's a narrative, isn't it? It's a, it's a story. But the claims of Jesus here are bigger than any claims anyone can ever make. These are cosmic claims, the number of titles we see Jesus have here. If you're important, you get a lot of titles and a lot of letters after your name. I mean, who can ever claim any one of these things? The queen, our monarch, she has a lot of titles. You know how, how long her title is? It, it goes like this, her official one. Elizabeth II, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom, of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of her other realms and territories, queen, head of the Commonwealth, defender of the faith. I mean, she's very important. You get a lot of titles when you're that important. Very impressive list. But who in the entire universe can claim any one of these. I am the Lamb of God. I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. And I'm the Divine Son of Man. And so when someone comes along and makes such a claim, what do you do? What do you do when someone makes such a claim? 
You see, this is all recorded down, not just as an interesting story for us, but it invites us in. We better check him out so that we will not remain ignorant. They checked him out, these first disciples. John and Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. They checked him out. They saw him. They believed him. And that's the purpose of this gospel. And so what do you do? Well, you know that saying, ignorance is bliss. But is it bliss when it comes to this? I mean, wouldn't it be so convenient, if you think about it, wouldn't it be so convenient if all of us just got to live our life without knowing any of this? It would be so much more convenient, wouldn't it? If no one ever claims to be the creator of the world, then I can continue to live my life like I'm accountable to no one. If no one ever claims to be the king of the universe, then I can make myself king. If no one ever claims to be God, the Son of God, then I might as well make myself God. It will be so convenient to not know any of this. Ignorance seems to be bliss. But not when it comes to something disimportant. This is not like being ignorant of the stuff we eat, what's in a dim sim or meat pie. Ignore that all your life, it doesn't matter. You eat too much of it, you might die earlier, but it doesn't really matter. But ignore this. What we see in this gospel, it's like trying to escape the inescapable. Because if Jesus really is who he claims to be, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Messiah and the Son of Man, we will all meet him one day, whether we like it or not. He will stand in judgment over us one day, whether we like it or not. In fact, the Bible warns us that the time of being ignorant is over. There's no more excuse. The time is over because Jesus has come. The word has become flesh. One of Jesus' later apostles, the Apostle Paul, he said this in Acts 17. He said, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. He tolerated it in the past. You didn't really know God, that's okay, but no more. And we read on, But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. There's no more excuse. Ignorance will not be tolerated any longer. And so my invitation to you is that if you have not yet, like these apostles here, these disciples here, like John or Andrew or Peter or Philip or Nathaniel, if you have not yet did what they did, come and see, well, you owe it to yourself to come and see, to check out who Jesus is before you make any judgment on him. And the invitation from Jesus is, come and see and you'll see greater things. And as we study the Gospel of John over the next two months or so, you will be confronted by the one who is the Son of Man, who promises you will see greater things, the only way to heaven. And so that's an invitation for those of you who do not yet know Jesus. But what about for the rest of us? What do you think this passage teaches us who are already Christians? 
who are already disciples, we know Jesus, we believe in him. What do you think this passage teaches us? Well, the first thing it teaches us is that for those who do follow Jesus, we are disciples of Jesus, like Andrew, like Peter, like Philip, like Nathaniel, then I want us who are Christians to feel the weight of this, to appreciate this. And that is, the truth is that if you are already a disciple of Jesus, then you are already doing the best thing you'll ever do in your entire life. If you're already a disciple of Jesus, you're already doing the most important thing you'll ever do in your entire life. And so you can take comfort in that. You can take great delight and joy in that. You've already done the most important thing if you're a disciple. You see, so often in our life and in all that we experience and see and watch around us, it feels like life is not complete yet. I need to do more. I need to achieve more. I need to succeed more. I need to see more before my life is satisfied. But this is saying, no, that's, that's just chasing the wind. If you are already a disciple of Jesus, you have done the most important thing ever. Nothing more important than to know Jesus because you're not ignorant of who he is anymore. And that really is the daily prayer that we have for our kids. What is it that a parent wants most for their child? Well, our world says many things. But what we want is that they will grow up knowing Jesus more deeply because they are the things of eternity. Nothing else will last. But what else can you take comfort in? Well, Jesus promised these disciples they will see greater things. Now, for us on this side of the cross, we have seen that greater thing. We have seen, why would I give my life to Jesus? Why would I follow him as his disciple? Why would I live for him? Because we have seen the greater thing. It is following the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who himself bled and died for us. He gave his life for us. Of course I'll give my life for him. And so firstly, if you already are a disciple, take great delight in that. Feel the joy of that. You've done the most important thing you could ever do in your entire life. But now the second thing is this. If we reflect on our lives, those of us who are believers already, none of us would have become a Christian if no one else told us. If it wasn't for that youth leader or Sunday school teacher or our parents, someone like John who pointed out that is Jesus, that is the Lamb of God, you will not be safe until you are with him. Or like Andrew who told his brother or like Philip who told his friend. They didn't want to leave their brother or their friend in ignorance. They found the greatest treasure already. I cannot keep this to myself. I must share him. Now, shouldn't that be also reflected in our own hearts? We wouldn't be believers if no one else told us. Now, what do we do? Now that we are disciples of Jesus, we must share him. We must share him around. And so shouldn't that also be the attitude of our hearts? And that's why we do all the things we do in our church. The many ministries we do, the events that we put on, 
even our elders retreat next week, it is because we are on a mission. We have to share Christ. We have to make him known. The Son of God has come. The Son of Man has come. We cannot leave our friends, our family, this world ignorant of their king. And so now I'd like to leave you with a thought. Often we live life. We long for things, we live for things, we strive for things. We live as though, you know, the phrase, the world is my oyster. I think it's better living the way John Wesley taught. He said, the world is not my oyster, the world is my parish. That is what we are to make known. The Lord, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the meeting point between heaven's fullness and earth's need. We're on a mission and we can take great delight in that. Let's pray.